0: This is the proclamation of God's word from 1 Samuel, chapter 14, verses 1 through 23. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other Seneha, The one greg rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Gibba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his almond, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with your heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them if they say to us wait until we come to you then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them but if they say come up to us then we will go up for the lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the philistines and the philistine said look Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves, and the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike was Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about twenty men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an anchor of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison, and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchman of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Adjehah, Bring the ark of God here, for the people of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel, who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Haven. This is the word of the Lord.
1: One of my dreams in life is that I wanted to be a college quarterback, especially if I could have gone to a real powerhouse school like USC. It's something about Southern California, the, the bright lights of the Coliseum, surrounded by talents on offense and defense, both sides of the ball. My, my only problem in life is that I'm 5'10", and I'm built to be a cross-country runner. I am not all that strong, so I do not check any of the boxes needed to be a quarterback at the University of Southern California. But this morning is my one chance to be somewhat quarterback-like, because if you know football, the quarterback, he walks up to the line, he scans the defense, and the quarterback has the option to either run the play that has been called by the coaches. Or he can call an audible. He has the freedom to change the play on the spot. It's actually what we are going to do this morning. The title listed in your bulletin is Amazing Grace. That was the original call played by me earlier this week. I wrote that title. And the idea of that title is that in this battle, the odds are overwhelmingly against Israel. Remember from two weeks ago, it's only 600 Israelite men that are able to fight. The Philistines have tens of thousands of troops. Plus, the Philistines, they have horses, and they have chariots, and they have all the weapons. This is an impossible victory for Israel to win. And yet, what we see in verse 15 is that God sends a panic into the camp of the Philistines. These men, they get scared. They begin to run. And as the men are running, the Israelites are able to pick off the Philistines quite easily. And so we ask, in this battle, who is the great hero? Who brings about the victory? Certainly not Saul. And Jonathan, for as wonderful as a man of faith he is, he doesn't actually fight all that much. The real hero here, of course, is God. God fights. God brings about salvation. This is God's battle and God's victory. This is essentially the gospel against overwhelming odds. God, in Christ, steps into the battle of sin and shame, fights the battle on behalf of His people. We rest in the victory that God has given to us. And in fact, the bleaker the situation, the greater the opportunity for God to pop his collar and to remind His people that He alone is the one who wins the great battles. Hence the title listed in your bulletin, Amazing Grace. So that was the original play call for this week. And just to be clear, I do believe that to be the overarching main point of this section, that God wins the great battle. Rest in Him. Worship Him. But here's my one chance to be a quarterback, to call an audible. So we're going to change the title so you can stretch it out on the front of your bulletin. We're going to change the title to A Righteous Risk. Now, I don't believe this righteous risk is the main point of this passage, but all week long I have been thinking about Jonathan in verse 6, and then he, he gives us this wonderful example of taking the right kind of risk, the kind of risk that, that trusts God to move forward and not just to wait longer. One of my fears is that many Christians in the name of waiting upon the Lord are paralyzed in life and therefore are never willing to take a risk for God. Look with me at verse 6. This is the main verse. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Here's the main line. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Lined up for battle, 100 Philistines for every Israelite man. Remember, the, the other side of the Philistines, they have all the weapons, they have all the short swords, they have all the shields. The Philistines have a stranglehold on the metal industry, so they, they got all the resources. God's people are vastly undermanned. Now, most people, when they would come to a situation like that, you look out, just overwhelming odds against you. Most people, when they come to that situation, would say, God, I see the battle. I've counted the cost. I see the odds. We're, we're, not, we're not winning here. I, 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 yes, of course, God, I, I, I trust you. But when push really comes to shove... I trust in horses. I trust in chariots. The Philistines have plenty of horses and chariots. Therefore, God, I'm out. I'm not going to go fight this one for you. And perhaps a little better than that attitude, but, but not much better, is that many people act like Gideon, the judge. Gideon says, God, for me to act, you need to prove something to me first, Remember Gideon, he, he's called to fight, but like all the judges, Gideon has a weakness. Gideon is a doubter. And so Gideon puts out a fleece, and if that fleece was damp in the morning, Gideon would take that as a sign that he should go and fight for God. So Gideon wakes up, the fleece is wet, and Gideon says, well, that's still not enough. I still have my doubts. And so Gideon needs double proof so the fleece needs to be damp twice. You see, Gideon is paralyzed by fear and will only reluctantly follow God if God makes it overwhelmingly clear through a sign. So many Christians act in life. We are scared and paralyzed by our doubts. Even if we are going to do something for God, we need God to make it overwhelmingly clear through miraculous signs to do something. And as a result, I believe, the mission of the church is stagnant. Here's a much better option, a righteous risk for God. Look at Jonathan. Look at his arm bare. Looking out, they see a massive challenge in front of them. And what does Jonathan say? He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. It's not assured. He has no promises. If you were to look at other translations here, like the NIV, it says, perhaps the Lord will work for us. There's No fleeces, no signs, no assurances, just a willingness on the part of these two men to step out and trust God for something big. Now, the the reason that they were able to do this comes after the comma. It goes on to say that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or few. So these two men, looking at the odds, they do not know what God is going to do, but they are confident that God can do whatever he wants. That's their their, their confidence. And so these men, they're about to go into battle, and they know if they die— It won't be because God's weak and God has lost. They'll die trusting that God is doing something better, even in the defeat of Israel. And of course, we see that God actually blesses these men's actions, and they go to war, and God wins this. And so it is proven again that God is more powerful than the enemy nations. But they go trusting that God knows what is going to happen. It's a very important insight. It gives us the confidence to take a risk for God. I learned this first from John Piper, that we can take a risk because we know that God cannot. God cannot take a risk. Therefore, we can. From Isaiah 46, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. You see, what Isaiah is saying in chapter 46 is that there is none... Like God, from the very beginning to the very end, from all that God has ever done to things that have not yet been done, God's counsel will stand. His purposes shall prevail. Isaiah reminds us that the smallest details in life, like a bird that is flying in from the east to the greatest things in life concerning the death of Christ, to the sustainment of the cosmos themselves, Everything happens according to God's sovereign will. The implication there is that it is impossible for God to take a risk. Ask yourself, what what is a risk? We would say a risk is taking an action when the outcome is unknown. And so we would say investing money is risky because we do not know what is going to happen with the financial markets. Or it's a risk for a man to ask a woman on a date because we hope that she will say yes, but that is not certain. She could say no, that is a risk. Taking a risk is acting when the outcome is unknown. And not knowing is not possible for God. So risk It's one of the things that God is not able to do. God cannot take a risk because the outcome is already secure. And it's not just that God is a fortune teller that he knows what is going to happen. God actually knows what is going to happen and also has the power to see it through. God cannot take a risk, and therefore, we can. Jonathan says, perhaps... Perhaps God might do this, but I, 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 I don't know. Jonathan does not know the outcome of this battle. All he knows is that God is in charge. And so whatever Jonathan does is not going to alter God's plan. And Jonathan sees that not as an opportunity to be paralyzed by indecision. But Jonathan's confidence in God's sovereign plan is his ability to move forward with this huge risk of stepping out to fight the Philistines. So here in the city of Detroit, knowing that God is sovereignly reigning, what the church needs are people committed to risky living for the sake of Christ. Let's think through. What, what does it mean to be risky for Christ? I have three aspects of how we can think through good risk. Number one, decisive versus waiting. Number two, your name on the line versus God's name on the line. And then third and finally, you must understand the difference between God's sovereign will and His moral will. Let's start with number one, decisive versus waiting. It's a well-known book written by a psychologist. His name was Barry Schwartz. Wrote this in 2004, titled The Paradox of Choice— Why more is less. And the idea, coming from his his research, is that we have more options in front of us than any other culture in the history of the world. We just have options galore. Now at first, having options in front of you, that sounds like a blessing, but the plethora of options before us is actually creating a generation of people that are indecisive, that were paralyzed by the option. Think of buying ketchup at Meyer. I mean, you, you, you go to Meijer, you're in the ketchup aisle, you need some ketchup for the 4th of July barbecue, and there's the name brands, there's Hunt's, and there's Heinz, you have to decide there, and under each brand, there's the organic option, or the inorganic option. There's also likely the local, made in the city option. And there's the Meijer store brand option. And then once you figure out what brand you're going to buy, you need to figure out, do you want bulk size or do you want family size? Do you want the glass bottle or do you want the plastic bottle? There are so many options just for ketchup. And you have to go to the produce aisle. You have to go pick out the meat. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. All of us, we have this desire to make the right decision. And so at every point, you have to calculate all the costs and it can be overwhelming. We're paralyzed by our indecision. It's actually why my wife likes going to Aldi. You no, know, Aldi is not bougie enough for options. There's just one thing on the shelf, and that's, you, you either like it or you don't like it. That's all it is. And it's actually very simple and very freeing. You just do the one thing that is in front of you. I went to a seminary with a lot of Dutch guys, and if you have some, some Dutch friends, you likely know that their last names describe them as a person. So the van bakers mean that you are from the family of the bakers, or van brouwer means that you're from the family of the brewers, or the vissers, or the fishing family. And what that meant was, if, if growing up, if your dad was a baker, you're not going to take a personality assessment. If you figure out your hidden gifts, you're just going to be a baker, if you're a viscer, again, you're not just going through years of introspection to figure out the perfect career path where you find perfect satisfaction, fulfillment in life. No, you're just going to be a fisherman. It's, it's, it's very simple. And that's like Aldi, it's actually quite freeing. And what's happening today is we see this plethora of options before us. How can we serve the Lord and we get paralyzed by all the potential options. And what Jonathan does is he just does the thing that is in front of him. He sees a war and so he goes to battle trusting God. The mission of the church is to head out into the world to preach Christ, make disciples, plant churches. This immense task. It's like fighting the Philistines that is before us. And instead of many churches and many Christians just being decisive and just going for it, We're paralyzed. We get bogged down by the details. Oh, what's what's my perfect job? What's my perfect college? Who's going to be my perfect spouse? Should I I be a teacher? Should I be a missionary? Should I be a pastor? Should I be a campus ministry worker? Should I work for a summer camp? Should I live in the city, around the suburbs, around the countryside? And then once we actually make a decision— There's years of introspection. Oh, change our job. Make the right decision. And so we go back and forth and we switch our majors 17 times and change our jobs with all the options that are before you to serve God. Just do something. Just be decisive. Pray. Then ask your Christian community and friends for wisdom and advice. And then to quote my very good friend, Kevin DeYoung, just do something. Whatever's in front of you, just do it. Do not overthink it. Be like Jonathan. Just go for it. Jonathan, thousands of bad guys are in front of him. He said, perhaps I might live, perhaps I might die. I don't know, but God's in control. I'm just going to go for it. He's very decisive. That's number one. To understand taking a good risk, you need to ask yourself, whose name is on the line? Is it your name on the line, or is it God's name? I think we, of course, understand that there are bad risks that we can take in life. I'm not sure if you have seen the movie Free Solo. It's about Alex Honnold. It's this young man that climbed El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. El Capitan is, is known around the world as a, a very difficult and very dangerous granite slab to climb it's it's over 3000 feet tall and Alex is the first one to climb it without using ropes so this this movie it's it's a live documentary of him climbing this mountain it is the most on edge i have ever been watching a movie it's it's just it's it's breathtaking you're on your edge just one tiny mistake Alex is going to fall thousands of feet to his death while it is captured on film. So Alex took an incredible risk. It is a very good movie. It's also really dumb. That, that is a dumb thing to do. That, that, that's careless. Yes, it is risky. And that was just, that was dumb. That's reckless with human life. And there seems to be a new wave of risky people that, that like risk just for the sake of risk. They care about their own name. They care about their own reputation. So they're willing to climb a mountain without ropes. They're, they're, they're careless. It's, it's entertainment driven. Perhaps it's fueled by an addiction for adrenaline. That, that's not what Jonathan is doing here. Jonathan is not taking a risk for adrenaline or for the sake of his own name. He's seeking to elevate God's name through this risk. He's taking a risk so that God's name would be set apart, so that God would look good and glorious. Remember the the original play call for this week, Amazing Grace. That's the main point of this section. Overwhelming odds are against Israel. They, They don't have a shot here. The greatest military general in the history of the world is not going to be able to win this battle 100 to 1, and the bad guys have all the weapons. I don't care if you're Caesar or Alexander the Great or General MacArthur, no one is going to be able to win this battle. So, at the very end, after taking this risk, there's one name that is lifted up. It's not Jonathan's, it's God's. God's name alone. Jonathan took a risk to further the name of God. He's not careless with his life. He's not just looking for an adventure. He's not an adrenaline junkie. No, he wants to lift up the name of God. A righteous risk centering on God's fame and not ours. Third and finally, understanding risk. We need to understand God's sovereign will and his moral will. You need to understand... Now, when we talk about God's will, that the Bible talks about God's will in different ways. And these different ways are not inconsistent, but actually complement one another. So the first way that the Bible talks about God's will is that of His sovereign will. This will is what I just quoted a few minutes ago from Isaiah 46. That God wills all things. So the rising and the setting of the sun, storm and drought, every political state that has risen and fallen, all of that is part of God's sovereign will. God wills it. God is absolutely in control. So that's one way the Bible talks about God's will. The second way the Bible talks about God's will is that of His moral will. God's moral will... Namely, the commandments that He gives to His people to follow in life. So I know with 100% certainty from the Ten Commandments that God's will for my life is that I would have no other gods before Him, that I don't take God's name in vain, that I don't commit adultery, that I don't steal, and down the Ten Commandments we go. God's will for your life is to simply do what He has made clear in His moral will in the Scriptures. I find this this verse to be incredibly helpful in trying to determine what is God's will for your life. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 This is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification just means to become holy, to be more like Jesus. And so what, what this means is, as, as God's people, we do not know God's sovereign will. That's why some people call it his hidden will. We, we don't know the future. We don't know what God's going to do this afternoon or tomorrow or at the end of the year. Therefore, do not make decisions. Do not even take a risk pretending that you know what God's sovereign hidden will is. We are to make decisions. We are to take a risk based on his clear moral will that is very simple to find in the scriptures i find that to be incredibly freeing if you want to be in god's will for your life all you need to do is trust him and do what he says i find so many people just constantly fretting about being in god's will just forever worried that, that one small decision is going to cut us out of God's sovereign will. And let me just remind you, God's sovereign hidden will does not depend on you. You're not going to make God more sovereign or less sovereign based on your decision making. So again, just this constant for oh, me, oh, oh no, I, 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 I think God's will was for me to move to Chicago, but now I'm in Detroit, and now I've had kids in Detroit, so now my kids are going to be outside of God's will forever. Or I, you know, I, I studied business in college. What if God's will was for me to be a lawyer? I'm just now forever, for, forever lost. And I just want to remind you, that's not how it works. You can't know God's sovereign will into the future. We base our decision-making, our risk-taking, off of trusting God by doing what He says in His moral will, trusting that His sovereign will is going to prevail. And you can look at the Scriptures very carefully and closely. And I promise you, you will not find a verse that tells you where you are to live, what job you are to take, what college you are to attend, or even what person you are to marry. See, our our job is simply to, to take God's commandments and apply them to our lives. And then we live in the freedom of trusting that God is sovereign and using those decisions. And then, of course, when we fall short and we sin and we don't follow God's law, we repent. We trust in his grace. Try again, trusting that even all that is in God's sovereign plan. That is God's will for your life. Act on his moral will by trusting in his sovereign will, which is exactly what Jonathan does here. So with those three aspects in mind, let's try and make this a bit more practical. What exactly can we do practically to take a risk? Number one, ask yourself, is this risk for God that you're about to take, is it guided by God's moral will? Is this risk, does it it line up with the clear commandments of the scriptures? Number two, ask yourself, will taking this risk bring glory to God's name or to my name? Whose reputation are you being risky for? And then third and finally, be decisive, don't be paralyzed, just go for it. And I hope that for all that Redeemer is known for here in the city of Detroit, hope that we're known for being gospel-centered, hope that we're known for being careful with the Scriptures, hope that we're known for being committed to the gathering of God's people every Sunday morning for worship. I I, I hope right at the top of that list— Is that Redeemer is known as a church full of men and women, like Jonathan, like his arm bearer, that are ready to be risky for Jesus. God's sovereign, let's take a risk for him. As you know, Redeemer is bullish on planting churches across metro Detroit. There's 4.5 million people in Detroit be more Detroiters than there are Philistines, and less and less of these people are going to church. The odds are against the Redeemer and are against the Detroit Project. And just to be clear, I or none of the pastors or elders or leaders here at the church, none of us have a a wet fleece that's been put out in the morning to to remind us that the Detroit Project is going to succeed. God has not written any things in the clouds saying, yes, go plant a church in Clarkston and Water. We do not have any of that. All we know is that God is sovereign no matter what. So let's step out of faith. Let's do something risky and trust God for something big. When we moved here seven years ago to help Pastor Dan plant Redeemer, there were a number of very good God-fearing church attending Christians that told us, first off, A church like Redeemer is not even possible in Detroit. Just the the odds are against you. I would think twice about taking this risk for Jesus. And then second, again, a number of people, God-fearing, church-going, faithful Christians told us, if you really want to do it, if you really, really want to take a risk and try and plant a church in downtown Detroit, no matter what, do not buy a house in the city, but we would encourage you to move to the suburbs where it is more safe to raise a family. As if safety equals godliness. So I'm going to remind you that this entire church is built on taking a risk for the sake of the gospel. It, again, I, I don't know what God's going to do, but I know He's in control, and I know He loves me. I know He's committed to us. I know He's committed to the church. Therefore, let's do something. Let's act for Him. Think of our our gathered and scattered ministry priorities. One of our goals is to start an outward-facing downtown ministry for skeptical professionals. Another priority is to elevate our care for the poor and marginalized here in the city. A general goal is to engage more and more Detroiters. Again, I don't have a damn fleece. I don't have a, a sign in the clouds. I have no guarantee of anything. Perhaps God might not do anything, and He will be glorified. Perhaps God might do something big. And he will also be glorified by it. No matter what, let's step out and trust him. The city of Detroit does not need paralyzed Christians that are afraid of risk. What the city needs is a movement of God's people across different churches that are absolutely convinced in their bones of God's sovereign will that God is sovereign over all things, that the birds that fly in from the east, the economic resurgence to when Detroit crashes, convinced that God is sovereign over all things. Therefore, God's people are going to do risky things in the city. It's not just risk for us as a church family. I would encourage you to be risky as an individual. If you're a young man, take a risk. Ask that girl out. For all of us, this upcoming week, take a risk. Start a spiritual conversation with a coworker. Host a block party this summer. Host a dinner for those that live on the floor in your apartment. If you're in a fractured relationship, you take the risk and pursue reconciliation. Buy a house in a part of the city that nobody else is willing to move to. Give beyond your means to the work of the global church. You see, God is not risky. He is sovereign. Therefore, we can take a risk for Him. As Abraham Kuyper has so famously said, there is not one square inch on the entire planet Earth over which the risen Christ does not claim as mine. He's Lord over all of it, it is all His. And then here's the gospel. The God who is sovereign over you in his sovereign will has also become your heavenly father. Which means that any risk that you take for God is actually not a risk at all. Because in that risk, in God's sovereign plan, God is actually hemming you as a father into his love. You belong to him. So any risk you take is not risky because God in his sovereignty is going to use that risk to further his own fatherly love in your life. So Jonathan looks out. All the odds are against him. He says, perhaps. He doesn't know. No fleece, no sign in the clouds. Perhaps he might die. Perhaps Israel might win. Perhaps the Lord might do a thing. And so Jonathan acts. He takes a risk. We be like Jonathan, trusting God and living risky lives for the sake of the gospel here in the city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this audible of a sermon might be helpful. Father, we do thank you that you are sovereignly in charge. That you control the weather, control all governments, control even significant redemptive events like the death and resurrection of your son. We thank you that you are in charge. The plan depends on you and not on us. And therefore, give us faith. Give us courage so that we might be willing to be risky for the sake of Christ like Jonathan. In Jesus' name, amen.